Well, good morning. Did you get a chance to put your handprint on that big piece of artwork through these doors last week? If you didn't yet get a chance to do that, you can still do that today after service. We're uh, putting our handprints up on this piece of masonite board and um, creating a piece of artwork. Some might call it artwork. Others might not call it artwork. Some kind of abstract artwork in which we can get a little bit dirty together and put our handprint up there and then say we're all in for where we're going together. And that's what we've been talking about here this past six weeks is looking at our mission statement that you saw there, our four core values, and then our vision statement. And we hope with you, the staff and the elder board, the pastors here, we really hope that we would collectively as a church say, yeah, for, for this mission statement, for these core values that we've been talking about, truth, community, gospel, and mission, and for the vision statement though, that we're talking about today, we are all in so much so that I'd even get my hand all messy and put it up there on that wood plank and, uh, and create a piece of artwork together to commemorate the, this series. So I encourage you to, uh, to do that right after this service. I can't tell you how encouraging uh, your response to this series has been for me. You never know when you begin talking about mission and core values and vision statement if the church as a whole is going to say, yeah, we're in for that. We, we believe in where we're going. And uh, the response has been very exciting for me and the staff. I want to just recap a couple items, Bob, before we get into today's message. Uh, two weeks ago, you might remember that Pastor Kevin and I co-taught up here on the value of community, in which we said community is far more than a meeting, it's the context for life change. We shared that the primary vehicle that we use here for helping people get into community is something called our life groups. And uh, in response to that, as we had kind of a life group Sunday, over the past couple Sundays, we've had 55 people take the bold, courageous step out of the seats and say, yeah, I want to be a part of community here. 55 people in two weeks. Simply incredible that all said, yeah, I, I want to be a part of a life group. And, and you might find, if you're one of those 55 people, that the life group that you get into isn't the perfect fit immediately. You might find, that's not really my people, and that's okay. Perhaps they'll become your people. And if they don't immediately become your people, then we can help you find another group. And then last week, well, we talked about the value of mission, that we believe all of us need to have some area of ministry, some area of mission in which we're making a difference in the world, making a difference in our own community, making a difference outside of these walls. And 42 people came forward at the ministry expo last week and said, I want to be on mission. I don't yet have an area of mission here. Would you please help me? Is that not awesome? 42 people in one Sunday. Uh, just a fantastic response to see that. And this is part of our vision, though, that we would lay down simple tracks for everyone to run on such that every person would have one area of ministry, at least one area of ministry, at least one small group community, and one gathering here where hopefully we gather together and we learn the scriptures and we get more acquainted with the gospel and we're inspired for life Monday through Sunday. And again, the response to this church has just been tremendous. And if we do these three things, we gather together here, we're in a life group community, a small group community of some kind, and we have some area of mission, we will be changed. We will grow into the likeness of Christ, which is really what it's all about for us anyway. 
So um, just a final note on that. If you weren't here either of those last two Sundays and you'd like to be a part of a small group or you'd like to get into the, the New Believers uh, gathering that is starting here on April 3rd, we have a New Believers gathering, so maybe you're, you're a new Christian yourself or you just like to know how you can grow in Christ, we have a gathering starting April 3rd at 9.15 that will probably turn into a life group itself. Uh, if you don't yet have community, if you, don't, if you don't yet have an area of ministry, you can fill out this communication card and let us know uh, that you would like help to find that. And you can put that in the communication boxes or else bring it out to the welcome table. And uh, there's also more information at the welcome table about the different ministries represented at last week's ministry expo. You can find more on that at carneyefree.com as well. But um, we want to do whatever we can to make it easy for you to enter into community and to find an area of mission that works for you. And then through it all, we want to communicate this vision that we'll talk about today. It's very simple, three words. Every person matters. This is a community in which we believe that here, that no one in here is a number, that every person has a name, and every person in here really, really matters to God, and therefore really, really matters to us. I can't tell you how much those three words sing music to my soul, to know that I would matter to other people in here, to know that I would matter to God, and I pray that you would believe the same thing. This is an aspirational vision. It's, it's both who we are right now, we believe this, we're programming toward this, but also it's what we're seeking to become. We recognize that in a larger church, sometimes you can feel like a number, and we don't want that in any way, and so we want to program toward this that every person would know they matter here, and when they're missing, they are missed. When I was 25 years old, I packed up my belongings in the back of an old station wagon and moved from Colorado across country to Mobile, Alabama. And I lived in Mobile for some time as I took a short-term job there, but really the primary reason that I moved down to Mobile is because I was fascinated with the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 1960s, and so I had spent a lot of time studying books on the civil rights movement, and I wanted to go study it on the spot where the events themselves happened and talk to people who were involved and go to different museums. And, and so I went and lived in Mobile, Alabama for a time, and I was, I was fascinated by the, the seismic changes that were able to be made by ordinary people when they locked arms together. Not by themselves, but as they locked arms together. And it was frequently ordinary people in ordinary churches all over the South that produced these seismic changes from the 50s and the 60s. One of my favorite activities when I was living down there was to go to um, various museums, some of them that were kind of off the beaten path and others that had a lot of name recognition in Tennessee or Mississippi or in Alabama. And I started to see that as you went to these different museums where they were big name recognition museums or just small little museums that you wouldn't know about unless someone referred you to them. Either way, you would see a photograph like this one. A black and white photograph, sometimes of men locking arms together and sometimes of men like this walking one after another with a simple placard around their neck that said simply, I am a man. 
And I always love that photograph and others like it because of the simplicity of it and the basic dignity that was demonstrated by the protesters, which unfortunately is somewhat different than many of the protests that we're seeing today. And I always love these photographs because they speak of this simple courage and this basic truth-telling message that I matter, I'm a man. But at the same time, it makes me tremble that such things would ever need to be said. Would you agree? Doesn't it make you tremble that such things would ever need to be stated that, that I'm a man? One of my favorite authors is a man named Russell Moore, and Moore has written a brilliant book back in 2015 called Onward with the subtitle, Engaging the Culture Without Losing the Gospel. And in that book, Onward, he explains, stay with me here, I hate Sanctity of Life Sunday. He goes on, don't get me wrong, I love to talk about the image of God and the protection of all human life, but I hate Sanctity of Life Sunday, not because of what we have to say, but that we have to say it at all. The idea of aborting an unborn child or abusing a born child or starving an elderly person or torturing an enemy combatant or screaming at an immigrant family, these ought to be so self-evidently wrong that a sanctity of human life Sunday ought to be as unnecessary as a reality of gravity Sunday. These shouldn't have to be stated. And yet we do need to state these kinds of things, that every person really matters to God, and therefore every person really matters to us. And so today we're going to state it in this service, and in the months and the years to come, we're going to state it again. And we'll preach it, and we'll preach it some more, and we will program toward it. And most importantly, we will live it, that every person matters deeply to God and every person matters so deeply to us. And so we want to think about how are we programming our ministries toward this. We think about the storehouse ministry or the bilingual ministry or single moms ministry or even our life group ministry. Part of the reason for each of these ministries that we offer, these various programs, is we really believe that every single person in here is not a number, but a name that matters so deeply to God that was created in His image, and so we want to do everything that we possibly can to unfold them into community. Tragically, this is a message that still needs to be stated. It's a message that always needed to be stated. It's a message that Jesus had to state in a number of different ways, different occasions. So I want to look this morning at a couple of those ways that He states it, starting in Luke chapter 10. If you turn with me there to Luke chapter 10, And we'll see a very well-known parable in which Jesus really shouts to the culture of his day, every single person matters. Luke 10, starting at verse 25. You can follow along with me on the screen, or else you can find it in your Bible over in the New Testament, from Matthew to Mark to the Gospel of Luke, the third Gospel in the New Testament. Starting at verse 25, and behold... 
a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, Jesus, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And your neighbor you shall love as yourself. And he said to Jesus, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live, Jesus said. But he, the religious law keeper, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor exactly, Jesus? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side as well. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you need, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Let's pray as we open up the Word of God. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for the power of your Word. This is a well-known parable, but it has the power to continue to teach us today. And so we ask, God, that you would open our minds and open our hearts as we seek to understand the words of Jesus here, and as we seek to apply them to our very lives. Father, we want to be numbered amongst those who show compassion, amongst those who show mercy, amongst those who love neighbors well. So would you please teach us this morning, we surrender to you. In the mighty name of Christ, we pray, amen. It's really a beautiful story, isn't it? You got these two men who are religious experts. They are really knowledgeable in the Bible, very deep in the Bible, but they're very shallow in love, are they not? You got a third man who probably isn't very strong in the Bible. He certainly is low on the social totem pole. He's low in terms of his standing, his status before the Jewish leaders of the day, but he is high in love. He's deep in love. At face value, the moral of the story is really very simple. You are to love your neighbor. Love those that God puts in your path. But the story's framed by this religious expert, this lawyer of sorts, who approaches Jesus with the question, so who exactly is my neighbor, Jesus? It's kind of a silly question, isn't it? What, what do you really mean by neighbor? I used to laugh at that question until I got to know some of my neighbors. Can you relate? 
who exactly is my neighbor? I mean, I assume, Jesus, you're talking about the kind of neighbor who brings me cookies on a regular basis. I assume you're talking about the kind of neighbor who does such a nice job taking care of their yard. The kind of neighbor who has a nice dog that doesn't bark at nighttime when I'm trying to sleep. You, you mean that kind of neighbor, right, Jesus? He turns this simple, concrete Reality, this great commandment, love your neighbor as yourself, the second great commandment, into this abstraction. As he is seeking to justify himself, he makes it into an abstraction. He says, tell me a little bit about the kind of neighbor that you would want me to love, Jesus. And so the great master storyteller just rolls up his sleeves and he tells this story of some specific characters that everyone who was a Hebrew in that day would have immediately recognized. He talks about three men that would have been recognized and then a fourth man who was beaten up on the side of the road very much in need of a neighbor. So who were these characters? The first one, of course, is the priest, the temple priest. And the temple priest, we're told, sees this man who's beaten up on the side of the road and he moves to the other side of the road. And the temple priest was the leader of religious worship in the temple in Jerusalem. He is an expert in the scriptures, an expert in the Old Testament, and the people go to him for religious instruction and for um, the celebration of their worship when they go to the temple. It's not a perfect parallel, but perhaps you could compare this to a bishop or to a senior pastor of a very large influential megachurch in an influential city like New York or like Washington City. He's supposed to be the person that other people go to for religious instruction. And he goes around the other side. No thanks, I'll have nothing to do with you. So also you see the Levite. And the Levite was uh, someone who was expected to assist the temple priest in worship at the temple in Jerusalem. He was kind of like an associate church staff, if you will, associate pastor at a church. And his job was to help out with the offerings. He was also an expert in the scriptures. These are the very people who are paid to help other people draw near to God. And they both see someone who is needing help. And they move to the other side of the road. As they're traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho, they're going down this well-known hill that's still there to this day. And it's nicknamed the Way of Blood. Because... It was a specific hill where people regularly ran into robbers who were hiding and would come and capture them and beat them up and sometimes kill these people who were going down this road. And so anyone who's hearing this story fall from Jesus knows exactly what he is talking about, exactly where he is talking about. And so on the way, these two men, the temple priest and the Levite, see a man who needs some help. He's stripped and he's beaten, he's robbed, he's bloodied and he's left to die and maybe just maybe, like I sometimes have, they assume someone else will take care of him. I'll leave that guy to someone else. Neighbor moves into the neighborhood, I'll, I'll leave them to someone else. I really don't have time to invite them over to dinner. Someone else in the neighborhood will do it. We notice someone in church who seems to have come here alone and seems to be lonely. Someone else will take care of that person. Someone else will visit that person. 
And on and on we could go. Sadly, sometimes this is just human nature, and I certainly have fallen prey to it. Perhaps as well, they saw this man on the side of the road, and they just rationalized, this guy will probably need some of my time. This guy will probably need some of my money. And what if he's not appreciative when I care for him? What if he doesn't pay me back? Or what if someone else notices that I'm with this person who's beaten up and half-clothed? And what might they think if they see me with a person like that? Has that ever gone through your mind? I have one witness. (laughs) Yeah, it goes through our minds, all of us. The religious experts in this story looked for reasons not to help. But then comes this Samaritan who looked for a reason to help. The man is beaten up, and for whatever reason, he's in my path, and so I can do something about it. Look at verse 34 on the screen. If you would, let's read this out loud together. Luke 10, 34. Would you please join me? He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn, and he took care of him. He said, this guy really matters. So I'm going to do more than just the minimum. And you know that as the story goes on that he went back and he cared for the man again and he gave two denarii, which is two days of wages to continue caring for the man even when he wasn't there caring for the man. He didn't look for anyone to pay him back. It's a beautiful picture of extravagant love. Now it's interesting, though this parable has a number of layers to it. It's both the way that we are to treat our neighbors, to treat those who are hurting that are right on our path, but is it not also the way that Jesus treated us when we were robbed and beaten down and broken on the side of the road? I can look back at the day in my own life when I was beaten down spiritually and Christ himself came and cared for me when I had nothing to offer. This is a portrait, the Good Samaritan in this story is a portrait of Christ himself. And yet, at the same time, it's also instruction for us in terms of how we are to demonstrate in practical form that people who are not my people really do, in fact, matter. The story would have been totally shocking to first century Jewish hearers. We, of course, think of a Samaritan as a good thing. Right, we, we speak of Good Samaritan Hospital down the street, and we speak of uh, Samaritan's Purse Ministries, or you think of uh, a Good Samaritan who cares for the elderly or reads uh, books to kids at school. Samaritan we think of as a good thing. But in the first century world, to a Jewish mind, Samaritan was never a good thing. If you know your history, your Old Testament history, Samaritans, well, were that group of Jewish people that uh, were captured by Assyrians and Babylonians about 600 years before the time of Jesus. And when they were brought into captivity, they disobeyed God and they intermarried with their captors. And not only did they intermarry with their captors, but they also took on their religion, such that they took on this kind of buffet form of Judaism. I'll take a little bit of this from Jewish faith and a little bit of this from Babylonian faith. That's what they were doing. And so they were considered by Jews half-blood traitors, They were the most despised people group in the Jewish mind of the day. Who's the most despised people group in our mind today? Don't say it. That's the Good Samaritan in this story. 
whoever it is that just came to your mind, that's the Samaritan in this story. He's the hero. Part of the lesson from this story goes like this. No one is outside of the long reach of the Lord. Anyone that you might think of who you would say, that's a villain, that, that is the worst kind of person. God can reach even that person. Do you believe that? That person becomes the hero in the story that is used by God in the story. Jesus is saying, in part, even that person can be used by God. So many layers in this story fall from the master storyteller, and yet at the same time, Jesus' overarching concern throughout this story is to combat the natural human tendency that says, she's not my problem. She's got way too much baggage to be my problem. No, what he's saying is, God has put this person on your path, therefore God has made this person your problem. Here's the big idea for this morning's message, which I hope you take with you today. If you take nothing else, please remember this. Love goes out of the way to serve individual people who are already on our path. Love goes out of the way to serve those individual people, to show mercy and compassion, as the Samaritan does here, to the individual people who are already on our path. Now, one of the things that I just absolutely love about this story is Jesus responds to this abstract question from the lawyer with this concrete detail about specific men or specific women or specific children who need a concrete demonstration of mercy to individual people who are on our path. And one of the things that we should get out of this story is that none of us can do everything for everyone. None of us can play this role of the Good Samaritan for every person in this room. Can I get an amen? We can't. But all of us can do that for a few other people in this room. Can I get an amen to that? We absolutely can. And if we reframe our question from, how am I going to change the world, to the question, what is my area of influence, and how can I make a difference in that specific area, then we will be more used by God. Last week, I, I googled the, the, the term, change the world, just to see how many hits I would get. Any guesses? 1,850,000,000 hits give or take a few. We are self-delusional. I mean, no one can accuse us moderns of lacking self-confidence. We really believe that every one of us is going to change the world. Most of us is not going to change the world. And it's not even the right question according to Jesus. Now, perhaps you will change the world. Perhaps a few of us will. Who's to say? God could God could do that through a few individuals in this room, but I would like to argue from this very parable that it's the wrong question. The expectation that Jesus gives is that we would be faithful with the people that he puts right in front of us, that we would identify our area of influence and make a difference right there, that we would bloom right where we are planted and touch other people there. When you think about it, this is also healthy for us because as we're constantly thinking about changing the world, as young people particularly always think about changing the world, sometimes that can develop in us a little bit of a, a mini-Messiah complex. 
And there's only one Messiah, of course. And so we just pause and we recognize that while I may not be able to change the world, I can make a difference in a few people's lives, such that every person in my family, such that every person in my family knows that they matter deeply to God and they matter deeply to me, such that every person in your life group knows that they matter deeply to God and deeply to you, such that every person in your neighborhood knows that they matter deeply to God and deeply to you. What if every single person that darkened the door of this church knew without any shadow of a doubt, I matter deeply to this church? Together, if we're doing that, we'll change our community. And together, if we're doing that, perhaps a changed community results in a changed state, and perhaps a changed state can result in a changed world. Jesus again gives us the example of this over in Luke chapter 15. You remember the parable of the lost sheep, and in the parable of the lost sheep, Jesus is again eating with uh, people who are described as sinners and tax collectors. That means probably they were prostitutes and traders. And he's eating with the riffraff of society again, and the religious leaders are looking at him with critical eyes, judging him but because of who he's eating with. But Jesus just understands that if you want to touch people around you, sometimes you have to go eat in the smoking section. If you want to make a difference in other people's lives, sometimes you've got to go meet them on their turf. And so that's what Jesus is doing. He goes and he meets people on their turf and says, you matter to God. And so they're judging him, and he goes on to say, well, think of the love of the Father. Remember, a good shepherd, if he was to lose just one sheep, that good shepherd would leave the other 99 sheep to go after that one sheep that was missing because he loves that one sheep so much that he would leave even the 99 to go get them. That's how much God thinks of you. And he says, so too, in Luke chapter 15, verse 6, just as a good shepherd would leave that 99 to go after the one who was lost, when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. He was lost, but now he's found. Friends, this is the love of the Father for you and me. Uh, you know, God loves the whole world, and we love to quote John 3.16. He loves all seven billion. But that begins with names, with your names, with every person's name that you could think of. It begins and it manifests itself in God searching after those individual people that are missing from his flock, such that he would go after them and demonstrate compassion for them, and he would invite us to do the same, invite us to go meet people on their turf, to go sit in the smoking section from time to time, if you will. I don't know about you, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to look for those who look differently than me, for those who act a little bit differently than me, for people who perhaps have sleeves of tattoos when I don't have sleeves of tattoos, or rings all over their ears and their faces when I do not, and go be with them, or people who vote differently than me, or people who sin differently than me, because they matter to God, they matter to me, they matter to us, they matter to the church. We go and we find them. We identify our area of influence, and we make a difference there. Friends, we've just been sold a false bill of goods. 
media culture and uh, celebrity culture has told us that unless we're, we're building wells in Africa, we're not doing enough. Unless we're eradicating third world hunger, we're not doing enough. Unless we're ending human trafficking, we're not doing enough. Have Have you been told that? That's a lie. And what does that produce? Anyone? It just produces a bunch of guilt. It doesn't help. It's not motivating. And God might call you to one of those ministries, and if he does, I give thanks to God that he does. Because those are great ministries. But don't listen to the lie that says unless you're changing the world, you're not doing it. Uh, Our job is to act like the Samaritan in this story that identifies those people who are right in our path and we seek to be a good neighbor to them. We identify people in this room who don't have communion and we seek to be a good neighbor to them. We identify people in our own neighborhoods. I mean, what if Jesus actually meant exactly what he said quite literally, when he said, love your neighbor as yourself. What if he actually meant neighbors? That'd be a good place for us to start. We start right there in our neighborhoods. We start right there with the people that are living and sitting right around us in church, and we make a difference from there. Again, it's kind of sad that we would ever have to state that every person matters in the church, and and I hate that I even have to stand up here and state this, but we all know the truth that so many young people and so many older people as well have spent time in the church and from the church they haven't experienced value, they experienced rejection. We know so many people that we could name who experienced rejection from the church at their time of need and because they experienced rejection when they failed in some way or they asked too many questions or whatever it might be, they decided I'm not going back there. And we want to be a different kind of church. The people can come in here with any kind of baggage, with any kinds of questions, with any kind of history, and realize I'm not going to be judged by that. That might affect some of the ministries that I can be involved with right now, but I can matter here and find a place to belong in this room. And I want you to know, though, that if you're new here today, I want to be so bold as to say, if you are new here today, give us six months. Give us six months, and I promise you, You will find hundreds of people in this room who will demonstrate you matter just where you are. You will find so many ministries in this church that are programmed to demonstrate this vision statement that every person matters. And if you're willing to take a bold step out into community, you will find many people moving right back towards you to welcome you there. You say, well, I got too much baggage, Adrian. I have so much invisible baggage behind me. You have no idea. I'm keeping Samsonite in business. You look around this room, people got plenty of baggage in here. Every person has baggage. Sometimes it's noticeable, sometimes it's hidden. But all of us have plenty of baggage. Wherever you are here today, I promise you, you come in here, we will find a place for you to belong in this community, and we will teach this, and we will seek to live it out. You matter to God, and therefore, you matter to us. I want to close out this morning with a story of how this has happened here at this church. I got a beautiful letter a couple weeks ago from Greg and Carol Miller. And some of you know Greg and Carol are just about to move to Florida as Greg's going to transfer there. And uh, they're grieving that because this community has been so influential 
to their entire family and their three boys. And I asked Greg and Carol if I could share a bit of the letter that he wrote me after we preached on community a couple weeks ago. And there's another name that's noted in this story, and I asked his permission, of course, as well. Anytime I ever share someone's story, I'll always ask permission before sharing it. But I'd invite you just to sit back and listen to this and allow this story about this community for one family to sink in for a second. Greg shared a number of ways that the town of Kearney and Amherst has made a difference in their lives. And then he goes on to say, most importantly, I want to share with you what Kearney EFC has meant to our son, Cade. Every time I read this story, I choke up. I remember when he was born. After the initial shock, it was a big shock of realizing that he had Down syndrome. I remember very clearly thinking that he would never have any friends and seeing an image in my mind of him lonely and hanging out in his bedroom. This was clearly my limitation and lack of trust in a sovereign God. I was so wrong. This community, both Carney Ephri and Carney and Amherst, have poured into our son and allowed him to grow into the amazing 20-year-old boy that he is. Full of love and life, full of trusting and caring heart, but most important, full of Jesus. It's not uncommon for us to recognize Cade having a vivid conversation with Jesus. He may not be able to speak very well to us, but he speaks very clearly with the Savior, and we are confident that he hears exactly what Cade has to say, and Cade hears him. They have some of the most amazing laughing sessions together. It's usually in the middle of the night, but oh well. <laughs> if you know Cade, you've seen this. He radiates the joy of Christ, does he not? Church attendance was a concern for us as Cade was growing up. He needed more than the average toddler's attention. And lo and behold, a special friend named Robert Moncrief. Stepped up and was Cade's Sunday school buddy for years as Cade moved up through elementary school. Robert was simply there every year. He made such an impact in our lives. It was amazing for us to be able to go to church service on a Sunday morning as a couple and know that our son Cade was being well cared for. You know, I think that impacts me so deeply because it's just this simple demonstration of love. That you have a leader like Robert who says, here's a man in my path, a young boy in my path, here's a family in my path, and I might not be able to change the world. And frankly, if anyone in the church could change the world, it's probably Robert, if you know Robert. <laughs> but he says, here's a family in my path, and I can do something about this. This young boy with Down syndrome, he matters to God and he matters to me. And uh, that kind of story, when you see it, is so powerful because it's a, a demonstration of exactly what Jesus is saying in this story. 
that love goes out of the way to serve those individuals who are already on our path. And whenever we see it, whenever we witness something like this, we know that we are witnessing the truth. Do we not? We know that we are witnessing beauty and truth that is able to transform. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the simple stories of extraordinarily great love. It's really easy for us to watch television and learn about some celebrity and think that there's really nothing we can do, but we remember in that story that compassion and mercy is far simpler than that. And so we ask, God, that you would turn us into this kind of community. I sense that we're already moving in this direction. There's so many people here that are already moving in this direction. I want to move more and more in this direction. But we ask, God, that you would increasingly turn us into a transformational community that is growing in love with Christ and all people. And, Father, you would grant us opportunities to demonstrate that love for all people in very specific ways for individual people that you place in front of us. Lord, it's our earnest desire at this church that every single person in this room would know that they matter so deeply to you, they matter so deeply to this church, and they matter to individuals in here. And I pray for anyone in here who doesn't know that. God, that you would grant them the courage to step forward and say, I need community. I need someone to pray for me. I need to be connected spiritually. You grant them the courage. And you grant us the courage as a church to be the kind of neighbors described here. We love you, Lord. In Christ's name, amen.